So you already got some good lessons just this morning. Even if you can't say it right, you can persevere to make it through. So nobody's got an exception for skipping scripture. And only an Asian guy can make a Kung Fu joke about reading scripture and giving in South Carolina. <laughs> good job, man. Good job. Danny's reading next week. I heard you trying to correct him, so you, you drew the, you drew the short stick. Chapter 22, study it all week and be ready. Hey, if you check out our title, I think it's pretty fitting. I think a lot of the lessons today, as funny as it sounds, being completely unplanned, tie right in directly to a lot of stuff for, for believers one and for all of us two. And then for three, they, they even hit it to baptism, um, candidates for today. So I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, but the title is resolving old issues. Anybody got any old issues in their life that they know aren't resolved? Anybody got some, some cobwebs in the closet? Don't raise your hand. People know them. <laughs> in the South, you definitely don't let nobody know because you'd be gossiped about all week. All right. So, so careful, careful raising your hands and letting them know. But I think we all do. I think we've all got some old issues, some, some, some junk in the, in the trunk that, that we haven't really, uh, you know, dealt with over time. And there's where David's at, you know, so really what we're at at, at chapter 21 is kind of, kind of getting to like just some wrap up points. Keep in mind, Samuel's probably not written in chronological order. So, so when you read this at the end, it doesn't necessarily mean this is exactly what happened after 20. This is kind of like, I guess you'd call it like an appendix if you were a, a book reader. Um, so, so it's wrapping up a lot of, a lot of key points that go on through these last couple of chapters. And I love what starts it, man, because chapter 21, it starts with what God getting our attention on some stuff we haven't addressed in life. That's what drew David to verse 21, where it says in chapter 21, verse one, a three year famine, it prompts David to seek God. Verse one, and David inquired of the Lord. Well, David only inquired of the Lord because the Lord had drew his attention that he needed to get his attention back on God. And I think a lot of times in our life, we're going through some stuff and dealing with some issues and God is trying his hardest to snatch our little heads and adjust them and turn them to see him. And sometimes we're stubborn enough to, to let it go on for three years, sometimes longer. And sometimes we're gracious enough like David where we say, you know what? Something serious is wrong here. Something ain't lining up. I'm going to inquire of the Lord. So David gets wise. He wisely seeks out God. He's concerned after the first year, I think. He's concerned after the second year of, of, of famine. And, and maybe even on those first two years, he's thinking, man, you know, the weather just isn't right or, or there's something wrong going on. But by year three, David said, this is something spiritual that needs to be addressed. And he goes to God and he prays with God and he talks with God and, and he gets an answer from God. And, and, and just one good point that we look at in the life of David that we've seen through this whole thing as we wrap up his life here in these last couple of chapters is David didn't see a, a spiritual reason in every problem. But he was wise enough to turn his eyes to God in certain circumstances when it became obvious what God was trying to do through him. And I think that's good advice for for us. So he gets to this third year and, and he knows that something is is more than ordinary. This is more than, than just a drought. This is something supernatural. And he seeks out God and God answers. And he says it's because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house because he killed the Gibeonites. You got any stuff in your closet because of other people's issues? Now you can raise your hand and point and you can get away with it and, and it's all right. I think a lot of us may. Now, some of us, we got our own issues that we haven't dealt with. And David's going to have issues. These giants that he deals with at the end and a, and a little section right in the middle uh, after, the, after the death of these seven guys, that's, that's some David issue that, that still doesn't get resolved. But what starts this whole thing is an issue that's not even David's. It's an issue that was somebody else's. But David's wise enough to deal with it. 
See, I think sometimes what happens to us as believers and as people is we realize an issue that's going on in our life is somebody else's fault. And we want to get all high and mighty. Well, I ain't got to deal with it. It ain't my problem. It ain't my issue. Somebody else caused that. Why should I have to do something because of what they did? And because you refuse to deal with it, whether it was their issue, your issue, or somebody else's issue, that issue just keeps on coming up and keeps on happening. And the famine and the drought and everything else just keeps on going longer and longer and longer than God ever wanted it to go on. Now, you got to look at something here because, again, chapter 21 and the rest, the last, the last four chapters here, we get like one sentence things that sum up a lot about what happened. So, so when you read this, it's because Saul and his bloodthirsty house killed uh, the Gibeonites. This massacre evidently must have occurred in 1 Samuel. We don't have any writing about it. I can't give you no details. I can give you speculation, uh, but, but it's not there. But we do know it happened because David doesn't say, no, he didn't. You know, God, you were wrong. What were you thinking? Like, that isn't that what happened. No, he evidently he knows about it and the rest of the people know about it. And actually, I think when he heard the line, he killed the Gibeonites. I think a chill ran up David's spine because he would have remembered. And, and I know all of you guys that have been with us for so long. Remember Joshua chapter nine, umpteen many months ago. Uh, and, and when we talked about that. So so this chill ran up his spine because the Gibeonites were protected people. They had a covenant with the people of God, back in the days of Joshua, Joshua chapter 9, and Israel swore that they would not harm the Gibeonites. Now, for those of you who may not remember this this covenant that was made, here's the interesting thing that I always make sure to point out on this covenant. God expected Israel to keep that promise, even though the Gibeonites tricked Israel into making that agreement. So if you get some time this week, go back and, and check out Joshua chapter 9, because a lot of us sometimes, we think if we made a deal or an agreement when we were tricked, or we were fooled, or let's just be honest, and we're talking about marriage, and he was handsome at one point, and then he got old and, and fat and wrinkly at another point, or or she was rich at one point, and then she got broke. We think sometimes that when we're tricked into the agreement, that we're able to get out of the agreement. That's not at all what God is looking at. God's saying, look, I know you were tricked to get into the agreement, and I still hold you accountable to an oath that you made between those people and me. So, So just a real small lesson we get in this one little thing that's this, this briefly overlooked is it emphasizes God expects us to keep our promises no matter what God expects nations to keep their promises time. This is 400 years ago. Now keep that in mind. I didn't think about that when I was telling you Joshua chapter nine, 400 years ago, time does not diminish our obligation to a promise, right? Now think about covenants agreements that we make God's correction. Here, here's another thing that we got to understand 400 years ago, God's correction can come at any time. For an offense that you made. Some of us are thinking, well, why didn't God deal with it back then? Why, why wasn't this something one of the very first things that, that David had to deal with? I think David had to wisen up and become the man, the leader that he could become in order for him to actually go back and start correcting some issues from the past and resolving other people's issues uh, along the way. Now, we see David do that all throughout, but this is just a, a distinct one that's important. So, so as we look at this, we can also know this. Here's one of my favorite. If God has such a high expectation of men keeping their covenant, then we can equally have a high expectation to God keeping his covenant to us. So when you study God's covenants and you figure that out, that's some good news right there, right? Especially for, for a lot of us today. Um, and one of his covenants all, all throughout the scripture is to be with, with his people. So, so study that out. Um, time doesn't weaken God's covenants. And, and I want to point this out. And I, I kind of hit it just a minute ago, but I want to make sure we get it. Even when a covenant is entered into foolishly, Guys, because we got tricked by the enemy, it doesn't give us the right to make a covenant with God and then go back on it and change it. That's not what God's expecting from us. And, and when we get these next couple of verses, you're thinking, man, it, 
it gets kind of bloody and it gets kind of harsh. And that's really that's really tough to understand. Like you just you you get to seven, you seven, go to the hill and hang yourself. I mean, that's like, dang, you know, what what exactly is going on in a biblical economy? Here's one of the lessons we're getting a biblical economy. Blood was the atonement for sin. It was. And we even get a, a small little in this story illustration of how one man's death can die for the sins of others. Now, no, no, these these seven guys aren't Jesus or anything like that. But we get that picture. And, and, and for us, it should remind us. And for those being baptized today, it should remind us that Christ has died for us. But like to, to bring us back out of the out of the out of the out of the water into new creations living for him. And, and it's just amazing. Another part of it. It's amazing that in the story that illustrates this, it's disobedience of Israel that led to a blood payment on behalf of the Gentiles that led back to the blessing of Israel. So God is just he's just wrapped this whole thing all the way around. So what does David do? Verse one, he gets the problem. He prays. He seeks God. He gets the answer, even when sometimes maybe when it's the answer we don't like. And, and you got to write this down what he does in verse two. David goes to the Gibeonites. You know why you got to write it down? Because there's not a one of us in this room that wants to go to somebody causing an issue we're dealing with and seek uh, resolution from it. Am I right? Not a one of us look forward to, oh, you know what? I want to go to my enemy and I want to sit down and have coffee with them and eat some Oreos and talk about all the, the, the problems of us massacring their people years ago and arranging the hanging of seven more people. Because that would be a that'd be a good sit down. You know, we'll have brunch afterwards and, and coffee and it'll just be a good. No, no. But David does. It says the king called the Gibeonites. David initiated resolution. Believers, if we're going to be believers, if we're going to be part of God's kingdom, you, especially you being baptized today more than ever. You need to understand that it's our job to initiate the hard stuff. It's our job to initiate the resolution that needs to be taking place. Verse two, it says this. So he goes to the Gibeonites and he's he's open and honest about what goes on. Verse two, Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. I point this verse out because we normally think a zeal is like a good thing. I want you to be zealous. I want you to, to have zeal. But misguided zeal brings destruction. You could actually maybe better put it this way. You tie in what David's doing. You tie in what Saul did. Zeal that is bathed with prayer and godly wisdom is great. Zeal without is reckless. If you just got zeal and nothing else, no direction, no wisdom, no goodness going that way, man, you're just leading to more recklessness, more foolishness, and more destruction. And another example we have to see here that a lot of us don't like is that good intentions don't always excuse bad actions. When, when we read this about Saul, we're thinking, man, Saul had a zeal for the children. He had good intentions, but his actions were horrible. That doesn't excuse it. Think about think about God himself. God doesn't excuse bad actions on behalf of our good intentions. And that, that goes all the way around. So, so God, God's not happy with this. Get to verse 3 through 6. David gets this agreement with the, with the Gibeonites. He even asks. Now think about this. This is the king now. This is the king going to a people at the, at the edge of his, his territory. So technically, it's almost like an enemy slash partner, you know, type thing going on. What can I do for you? He doesn't say, hey, this is the way it's going to be. He doesn't say, hey, I'm the king. I think sometimes we go to approach some people who we'd like to solve an issue with, and we approach it the wrong way with like tight entitlement on our mind. Well, let me tell you what's going to happen. Let me tell you what I want. Let me tell you what I'm expecting. Let me tell you what I'm willing to do. What if we just went to people and been like, hey, what what can I do for you? What if as believers we swallowed our pride, swallowed our, 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 our entitlement attitude, 
It just wouldn't be like, man, hey, something was done wrong in the past. What can I now do to make it right for the future? And that's what he does. He goes, what can I do for you? David's not dictating these terms. He's going with the right attitude, the right way. And the people respond in the right way. David, we're not looking for any silver or gold, man. We're, we're not even looking for you to massacre the people of Israel like what was done to us. You know, so he's not wanting money. He's not wanting the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth mentality. The solution, verse six, we just want seven of his descendants to be delivered to us. Now we read that and they're like, dang, like that's you straight up just telling the king, hey, send me seven of your people. Hang them on this hill for everybody to see and all will be good. But in this time, guys, this is a reasonable request. The sacrifice of seven versus going to war again or, or having God's judgment continue to be upon you. The symbolism of seven being completion. That's that's kind of neat there. And, and it's the same thing. So David, David, since it's reasonable, he agrees. What, what does he say? Still at the end of verse six, I'll give them to you. David knew what was the right thing to do. David knew what was the right thing to do, and he did it. He acted on what he knew. Now, obviously, we're not told everything about the incident. We're not told exactly what went on and, and how they processed out there. You know, I picture, you know, David going back to the town and you seven come with me. We, we've got to deal with something. You know, were they fighting the whole way back up to the hill? Were they fighting when they got to that? You know, what exactly took place? We don't know. But scripture, uh, at least Abraham in Genesis says this, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. And when I read that verse, we're reminded, we just need to trust that even though we don't get all the details of this incident, God's in control. And if God's in control of the issue, of course, it's going to be handled and it's going to be done right. And the, and the, and the answer that comes afterwards, of course, we know that it was done right. So seven through nine, David fulfills this agreement with the Gibeonites. And it starts off with reminding us that he spares a name that somebody skipped over. And Danny corrected him by saying Mephibosheth because it's such a fun name to say. So, so it, it says that the king spared this guy. In all honesty, guys, if you look at the lineage, this guy should have been the first guy picked to be one of the seven. This is Saul's grandson. He's direct bloodline. Like he should have been number one. If you're going down the order of, of seven males, you got to pick out, boom, this guy's got to be number one. But David made a covenant with Mephibosheth, you know, a long time ago that in, in, in a covenant with Jonathan that he was going to make sure this guy was going to be protected. That he was going to be blessed and he was going to be taken care of. So here's what we see with David. David would fulfill his promise, but he would not fulfill one promise at the expense of another promise. And I think sometimes we need to be reminded of that. Like it's okay to keep an old promise and somehow make the arrangements to keep the new promise going. And David does that. Verse nine, it says that they hang them on the hill before the Lord, a public hanging. And just that phrase before the Lord implies that God approves of this execution. Does God want murder? No, this isn't murder. This is. This is an execution. This is a payment. This is a different type of, of death that's taking place. Do we understand it? Do we like it? Probably not, other than the fact they make a cool movie scene. But, you know, other than that, that's about it. Get to verse 10. And you get probably, I don't know if you guys caught it. I didn't catch it the first, I don't know, five or six times I read this chapter in all honesty. But it hit me like real hard Friday night, Saturday morning. This this next scene, man, 10 through 14 is where we're at if you're in your, you're in your Bible. This, this Rizpah, the mother. What she's doing right here is like the saddest scene ever. What we know about her is this. She's the mother of at least two of the seven that have been delivered by execution. So she's watching two of her own children hanging on this hill. She's watched five of her family members. One way or the other, they were somehow related because they're all part of this, this same family, the same lineage. And she has taken her time to go there 
hold sackcloth over them to protect their bodies. She sat there day and night. We don't know how many days or possibly even months this lady did this, but she's sitting on this hill protecting animals from coming up against decomposing bodies. I mean, let's just paint the picture for exactly what goes on. We get, we get one or two sentences about it, but it's a much deeper thing that's taking place right here. But something I love about this lady is she never says it wasn't fair. She never says it wasn't something that needed to be done. She's honest and open about what take, what took place. This is something that had to happen. And at the same time, she's willing to sacrifice her energy, her, her weariness, her tiredness, her time to stand there and protect these bodies against whatever nature would throw at them as they hang on this hill. Because properly in this time, executed bodies, they didn't deserve no burial. They didn't, they didn't deserve any. They would hang there, you know, almost like you picture in pirate movies. They would hang there until everything just fell off the, the rope for, for an example for people to see what's going on. So justice is satisfied. Israel gets delivered. I want, I want, I want to read 12 and 13 to us. So look, if you got your Bibles, look at 12 and 13 real quick. Actually, I want, I want to start with 11. 11 is where we were just at. So what she's doing gets reported to David. And when it gets reported to David, David instantly does something. Verse 12 tells us that he went and got the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from, from this other city. Now, where's this other city at? Is it, is it like partner territory, enemy territory? Philistine territory. So maybe, I'm not saying this. Maybe him going to get the bones is what sparks these giants to come back if it's chronological. Now, I'm perfectly fine with it not being chronological. That don't really matter to me. But it's kind of neat. What it tells us, though, is this. David, is he's sitting in his palace. He gets news. Hey, man, this mother, like she's on the hill every day, swatting away the, the crows and the buzzards, and she's holding up sackcloth to protect the, the bodies. And, 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 man, she is she's just there nonstop. Doing this and something goes off because it transitions real fast. Something goes off in David's head and he remembers, man, I, I never went back and claimed Saul and Jonathan's bones back from enemy territory. Like he gets a Marine mentality, you know, no, no man left behind right now. Like he's, he's saying, hold on. There's no way everything can be made right because I've still got some issues in the past I never dealt with. Maybe just for one glimpse on the inside, David was happy Saul was finally gone. Maybe that's why he didn't go back. I don't know. He never speaks ill of Saul, though, so, so that's kind of just a, an internal struggle maybe he was dealing with. But he wisens up, and he gets his, his battalion of men, and they go, they, they, they go to enemy territory, dig up this, 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 these bones, and bring them back to where they're supposed to be. Now, I don't know about you, but when God speaks to me, I wish I could react as fast as David does right here. That's what I believe is happening. I believe David is, is seeing this lady and she's a tool, a vessel that God is using to remind David, man, you got some issues you ain't dealt with. And David stops. In, I mean, mid, mid verse, David stops instantly in verse 12. And he says he went and he got the bones of these guys and brought them back instantly. Instantly. What goes on with this? Troubles a lot of times. Now, this has been one of the most troubled part of, of David's walk, probably when Jonathan and Saul die and, and he's beginning to become king and all this. Troubles make us slack sometime in our walk. They make us foolish in, in, in what we're going on with. And, and it wasn't until the execution of, of Saul's. It wasn't the execution of Saul's sons, which bring healing to the land because verse 14 hadn't happened yet. So, so keep that in mind. It's not until the burial of Saul and his sons that the famine actually ends in verse 14. So God is looking for David, the leader. 
to also make right on some past issues of his own so that he can now heal the land. And luckily, David is wise enough to see it. I don't know if the spirit spoke to him, you know, when he sees this lady or he's just reminded her, whatever it is, but he reacts on it. And this mama highlights their improper disposal of past bodies. And, and he's wise enough to do his part and to deal with it. And verse 14 finally comes and the famine ends. After that, God heeded the prayer for the land and the famine was over. Now, what this tells me is it says after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. So this means from the time Saul was massacred, maybe, or Saul massacred the Gibeonites until David's day. Not that God hadn't been answering any prayers, but God was waiting for a period of time to deal with this issue. And this was that period, this period. God wanted to deal with this sin. And he's going to take this time period where he's not going to answer their prayers. He's not going to reach out to them. He's not going to bring blessing upon them. And he's going to make them seek out their past and old issues, cobwebs in the closet, and resolve this stuff so they can now get their, their blessing for the future. And I think sometimes that's where we're at. We've got some stuff right now that, that we, we need to go seek out and check out so that we can get the blessings God's got for us in the future. And God's using his, his I hate to say it this way, but it's, but it's almost like his, his holding of, of response to waken us to some issues we need to deal with. So as we do this, we need to we need to heed this example that David sets because it is a sin. And until that sin is dealt with, the prayers of the people aren't answered. But when the prayers are dealt with, God immediately starts to dig. He addresses the problem and he gets stuff going. So here's four real quick steps. Don't think we're at the end and get that excited. But here's four quick steps. You know, we got to get to them giants for resolution. So if you got resolution, you need four easy steps to write down for it. First one, seek God. First thing David does, he prays. He doesn't go seek out the meteorologist. He doesn't go talk to the weatherman. Hey, man, why is it not raining? Like, why is it so hot? And why is everything not growing? And and what's going on? He goes to the right counsel. Sometimes when we're trying to solve a problem, we consult the wrong source. David seeks God. The irony of this, I had to write down from, if you go back to Joshua 9, the irony of David seeking God first is them not seeking God first is what got them in the problem in Joshua chapter 9. So David is correcting this this past thing. So there's number one, easy, seek God. Number two, we ought to be the ones initiating open conversation. Is conversation tough? Do we like it? Well, when you're talking to your enemy, probably not. Some of you don't like talking to loved ones, so you definitely don't like talking to the enemy, right? But you got to be the one to initiate open conversation. God revealed to David what the problem was. David initiated the meeting. He went in there. He didn't define anything. He just went and opened up for them. He went straight to the offended party. So believers, if you want to solve your problems, you need to go to the offended party. All right? You won't really, don't be surprised if the offended party ain't coming to you. All right? They're not going to come to you. Their, their standards are different. Their, their ways are different. They're, you know, that's why they're the bad guys. They're enemies. So don't be surprised. Number three, not only initiate open conversation. Number three, we got to take appropriate action. We got to take the action. Now, I love what David does here. If you go back and check out one through three, David opened this conversation and he states his goal. My goal is to help you be more of a blessing and not a curse. David's not saying, man, I, I can fix the past. He can't. I think sometimes we come into an attitude thinking like, what can I do to fix the past? You can't fix the past. The past is gone. It's over. All right, unless you get a time machine and, and, and you and uh, Doc get, get on the, uh, you know, the, the car and y'all race back to back to the future, you're not going to fix the past. Okay, that's, that's over. So there's no need to spend time thinking you can do that. What, what does he do? I want to look forward to the future. I'm not going to look backwards. So he tells these people, verse three, I want to help you guys become a blessing and not a curse. He's not trying to trying to make up for the past. He's trying to build for the future. Something very similar takes place in Acts chapter six. 
You know, Acts chapter 6, I don't know if you guys know exactly what's going on, but Acts chapter 6, a lot of the widows and the orphans weren't being tended to. So that's where deacons and elders and all that stuff begins to, to get evolved and, and, and going. And, and none of the guys in the church say we can fix it wrong. He says, no, we're just, this is what we're going to do for the future. Uh, we, we see the, we see the, we see the problem in the past. Now we're going to address it for the future. You can't go back and fix the past. All you can do is, is pave a way for a better future. Sometimes that's just realizing that will make a huge difference in our walk. All right. So that's what they're doing. And the fourth thing, last thing, what David really does, which is a picture of, of Christ because he goes against the customs. You got to demonstrate dignity. Demonstrate dignity. These guys were executed. Therefore, they weren't regarded as being worthy of a funeral or anything like this in, in, in the custom of that day. David goes against the customs of that day, sees to it that these seven men and the remains of Saul and his family are placed in the family tomb, just like Christ went against all the customs of his day to make sure stuff was dealt with the right way. And David understands the injustice of the past didn't warn another injustice for the future. So he's smart in how he handles this stuff. He, he demonstrates his dignity for all parties involved. It's good, good stuff that David's doing. All right. Now we get to them giants that Cliff loved to read about and tell us about. And you're not going to hear me say any other names because I can't say them either. So here we are. Verse 15 through 17. David's getting ready to retire. Look at verse 15. So, again, maybe by David and his men seeking in there and getting these bones, this is why the giants come back. Maybe we're at a whole different time period. OK, don't care. Don't matter. But it just will make sure we look at both views. All right. Says that David gets ready to go fight these guys, but verse 15 says, and David grew faint. David's old, man. You can't expect the same thing from an old dude that you could have expected from a young dude, right? I mean, I, I, I don't know if you guys follow boxing at all. I'm very interested to see what's going to happen here in September when some old dudes get back in the ring. Now, don't get me wrong. One of them old dudes, I think, could still send me to the moon and back because um, he, he kept up with himself pretty well. But, but it's going to be an interesting thing, and, and people are intrigued by it. You know, we're, we, we want to see what's, what's really going to happen. Do they still have it? Can they still, you know, throw them gloves together and, and check out what's going on? Can they still move? Or will it be the most slow-paced fight you've ever seen? You know, I don't know. I don't know what to expect. Maybe it's going to be one round. Maybe they won't make it 12, so it won't be that. But it's going to be interesting. But David gets to a part where, where he's just old, man. And here's what, here's what I love happens. Because Israel as a country is now faced with a challenge. What do we do when we see the weakness of our leader? What do you do when you see the weakness of your leader? Now, now here's what I think makes the biggest difference. It was a weakness that could be understood. David's not weak because he's weak. David's weak because he's old. Like he's put in his time. He's done well. He, he's, he's now got the country back on the upswing. I mean, he's probably, if, you, if you're a time person, he's probably about 78 years old now. But he's still willing to be the first man to go down there and meet this uh, giant. He's still the first guy this giant sees at 78 years old, at least. So he's a bad old dude, right? But age don't care how bad you think you are. Age will get you. Some of you in the room know what that means. Some of you will know what it means very soon. Some of you won't live that long, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> Here's right. They understand this. All right. This is something he couldn't think. So they rally around him just because he's weak. They don't they don't kick him out. They don't they don't desert him. They don't, they don't say, you know, what? this is something that, that you can't help that, that is understood. We're going to rally around you. We're going to supply what you can. Believers hear me, especially you guys being baptized today. Part of part of today, you, you're not just 
you know, making this public profession. You're not symbolism of not just you are doing that symbolism of going down and coming back out. Part of today unites you with the body of believers. Part of today officially makes you, you know, members of the new kingdom. And as we as you remember that, here's what you need to remember. There's going to be times when you get weak and you grow faint and you need to remember that you've got those around you that are going to rally around you to support you, to hold you up, to to do as Abishai does. I almost want to say it like you said it to, to, do, to do what Abishai did. Look, look at what it says still in the same verse or verse 17. I'm sorry, not the same verse. Verse 17. So this giant sees David. He even says, I, I'm going to get him. The enemy wants to attack you. When you are weak and you show weakness. So this, this, this giant is looking. He's, he's aiming right at David. And Abishai came to his aid. And it says that Abishai took care of him. Abishai killed and eliminated this guy. God protected him through the strength of others. Believers, God wants to protect you through the strength of others. That's why it's so important who you associate with, who are you with, who you join with. And understand this. God will allow us to be in places where we need to see the strength of others. Right? God didn't stop him from getting in that first battle. He said, you know what? You want that first giant? You you want what I believe at this part was either one of Goliath's uh, brothers or sons, which I think all four of these guys are, uh, which that's a whole whole different kind of study. But but anyway, you know, you want one of them? Go ahead and get in the front of the battle and let's see what happens. Right. Be, be the big boy. And, and he gets there and he, and he does. And he doesn't back away until he grows faint. And then God says, I want you to see in that struggle that when I let you get in this struggle, I've also got people that are going to rally behind you to get you out of the struggle. Sometimes the whole point of God letting you get in the mess is so that he can show you he'll get you out of the mess. That's where David's at. It says Abishai came. Maybe you can look at it this way. Uh, Ecclesiastes, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if one falls down, you got a companion to lift you up. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And then, of course, the very next section, verse 13, goes into saying that the cord of three strands, which is when Christ gets involved, can never be broken. All right. So verse 17. It's one thing to have to rescue a leader. It's another thing when you got to look at your leader and say these words. David, you're not going with us into battle any longer. We need some people in our lives that tell us the hard things we don't want to hear. That's where David's at. David's at air right now where he's still he's 78, but he still wants to be 28. You know what I'm saying? But he needs a good friend that's going to come up and tell him, David, you're 78. You look like you're 98. Right. And it ain't working good for you. He needs that. He needs that. So that these people, they, they come to him and say, David, you're not going with us into the battle anymore. Not even for that. So David retires. His season for a warrior has passed. Keep in mind, you will have different seasons in your life. But at the same time, these people are doing this to protect him. All right. So, so David gets there. Then we get to verse 18. And we've got three more Philistines. And, and for you note takers, just jot this down. You've got one plus three equals what? Four. How many stones did David pick up? Five. Might it be, again, I'm not saying it is, might it be that David had these four guys in mind when he drew up those four extra stones? Huh? Might it be that he already had a reputation for, for these guys? I mean, look at the stats that are listed with these guys. One of them's taller than the other giants. One of them's got 24 fingers and toes. I mean, that guy just looks weird. Uh, which, by the way, if you Google that, there are pictures of people today that have six fingers and six toes. Um, so I don't know who that's for, but in my study, I found that yesterday. So I wanted you guys to know that you can Google and see strange pictures on the Internet. Uh, so if you learn nothing else today, at least you know that real people with six fingers and six toes do exist. Right. He got four stones left over. It might be for these guys. I don't know. I just thought it was interesting. Right. 
It says this, though, verse 18. Now, it happened afterward. Now, we don't think that's so important, but we need to understand when it says it happened afterward. Here's what the lesson is for us. It's showing that Israel could slay giants even after David. We need to understand that we can slay giants after our heroes have fallen. After our heroes are 78 and can't go on anymore. After our heroes just aren't there to do the job anymore. All right, so when it says afterward, that's important for us. It lists these guys' names that Cliff did an awesome job of saying that I'm going to skip over until Jonathan because that's a good white boy name and it's easy to say and there it is, right? So Jonathan, you get it. Jonathan says, these men, they accomplished great things. And here's what we need to understand. Here's a lesson. God will accomplish and raise up great leaders from one generation to the next when one generation is fading out. Today, we've got we've got people from nine to not to put you on the scene, but Mr. Allen, how old are you? Seventy eight, twenty eight. Almost seventy eight. Yes, I was a good guess. Right. Seventy five. Think about it, though, from nine to seventy five. That that range. And look at that picture. Though. God is raising up generation after generation after generation the entire time. To, to get that thing going. They, and that's what's happening when it talks about these, these leaders. And leaders understand this, or Christians in general understand this. Your legacy is not just what you accomplish. Your legacy is what you leave behind. So parents, your legacy is going to live through your children. Your, your, your legacy is going to live through your, your co-workers and those under you. Your, your legacy is not just in what you do, but it's preparing people for victory for their future. And if we haven't done that, then we failed to leave a good legacy. Greatest test for any leader is what happens when the leader ain't there. Does the show go on or does the show stop? You know what I'm saying? If the show stops, I'm going to be honest. You, you get high and mighty thinking that everything, oh, they need me. Yeah, but you did a poor job at equipping them for handling the future then. Right? So swallow your pride and make sure you've got men under you that can carry on the battle. Right? Verse 22 says they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. I just point that out because it's awesome that David is conquering enemies in the present that Solomon's not going to have to deal with. He's setting his son up for success. Now, he did a bad job with a lot of his kids, but he's trying his hardest to make sure Solomon is set up for success. Your victory today is not only for you, but it's for the next generation coming up after you. You need to remember that. All right? Defeated these giants. Good example through this and, and some lessons we get. Last four super quick lessons. Just because it looks like the same battle from the past, don't assume it is. Because here's what you do. If you think it's the same battle from the past, you're going to try to fight it the same way. First mistake that happens, right? David's facing the same relatives of Goliath. We know it. It keeps referring to the giant. They're either the sons or the brothers or a mixture of both. I don't think there's enough proof to say one way or the other, so that's why I just throw both out there. These guys, the same nationality, the same size. They probably look like Goliath. They probably smelled like Goliath. They probably behaved like Goliath. They probably as ugly as Goliath. You know, so, so David's got all this going on and he sees it. And it's easy when we see an enemy that looks like an old enemy to think I'm fighting the same battle I've already fought. But you've got to keep in mind that you're not. And here's why. It's a different day. It's a different time. A different enemy. You're a different person. You've got different weapons. You've got different people. And it's important for us to differentiate between the battles. Because Satan will try to trick you and attempt you into playing the game that you've already played. Once for one reason to get you to do it the same way. Remember, guy, he watches film on you, so he knows how to. If you were gonna sling a rock, he teaches this giant to, to, to jig and jive a little bit better, right? But two, here's what it leads to: just because you're fighting the same battle from the past, don't assume you were never victorious. If the enemy can get you thinking that you're fighting the same battle and the same enemy every single time, 
you've got nothing to have a praise report about because you still ain't won a battle yet. Right? That's what the enemy wants to get you thinking. He wants you to get you thinking like you don't have the freedom you thought you had. You don't have the victory that you thought you had. You don't have the, the winning record that you thought you had. That's why it's so vital for believers to not think they're fighting the same battle and the same enemy over and over and let the enemy trick you like this. It's important to know that the thief does come to steal. And one of the things he comes to steal is our victories and, and our accomplishments and our, and our excitement that comes with that, which leads us to three. Just because it looks like you're fighting the same battle from mass, don't assume complete victory is not possible. We, I've seen too many people, man, whether it's your language on Facebook, your language in person, your gestures, your text, or anything else that suggests that you've given up victorious areas of your life. And believers, man, that's a sad place for a believer to be, right? That's a sad place to even think that that is an option. We think that defeat is the only way. We, 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 ugh. too many partial victories and too many setbacks allow us and encourage us to just settle. God has never called believers to just settle. When he wrote to the Philippians in chapter one, verse six, Paul, he said, he who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it to the very end. And I believe that. And I think more believers ought to believe that. They ought to believe that the core of their being is no matter what's going on, what enemies, what what battles, what what wars, how many times I have to face a, a different giant, how many times the giant looks similar to another giant, that I will not waver from the truth of what God promised, that he who began it in me will see it through to completion. God is, God is beginning some great things in our lives. And if we don't think he'll see it through to the end, we will stop before we get to the end and we will live defeated lives. God does not want so sick of people wanting to say, well, I'm just settling for this mediocre marriage. God didn't call you to settle. He didn't call you to run away either. That goes back to that past covenant thing either. Okay. You got to You got to sometimes approach the situation and solve the issue. You got to sometimes seek out the, the solution. God didn't call you to live a miserable life. And when believers are living miserable lives, man, they've missed what God's got for them. And of course, the whole world don't want what we got when we're miserable. I wouldn't want what you got either. You walk around looking like a little sourpuss all the time with nothing good going on in your life. Right? Man, if you don't look happy, why in the world would somebody want what you got? Fourth thing, final lesson. Wrap this thing up. Just because it looks like the same battle from the past, don't assume you got to fight this one alone. Or even assume you got to fight it the same way. Go back to, to 1 Samuel, man. Go back to when David was just a boy and he wandered up into that creek bed and he brought his Happy Meal lunch for the for his brothers and everybody down there and he heard this giant talking trash and he saw him from a distance and he said, why are you guys letting that guy talk about our God the way that he's talking about him? And he goes down to the creek and he just starts picking up some rocks, right? And he turns around. And Saul was there at that time who should have been fighting the battle, but he was a lousy king, so he didn't fight it either. And he turns around and Saul is standing there saying, man, here's here's my armor. I'm not doing nothing with it. You might as well wear it. And David tells him, I don't need to wear armor that is yours. I need to wear armor that is mine. So he goes with what God blessed him and trained him with. And he picks up those rocks and he picks up that sling. And how many people were behind him when he went there? How many? How many people went onto the battlefield with him? How many people were standing behind him when Goliath stepped up and said, come on, you little runt? Nobody. He's all alone. And I'm going to tell you right now, and don't get me wrong, you are so right, but I, let's just be honest about it, right? We know that God is with us in all battles. I, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you guys since you guys might not want to be honest. Here's the honesty of it. There's sometimes I know God's with me, but I think it'd be a lot nicer to have some friends, some family, some comrades, some physical beings that I can throw gloves with. 
you know, and, and get the fight going with. Am I right? And I'm not taking away from you, Lord. And I'm not taking away from the fact that God is always with us and doesn't desert us. But I'm just being honest. There are some fights and some battles that you got to fight alone. And if you just had somebody to come along with you during that fight, it sure would be a lot nicer to get through that moment. There's some pains and some storms and some tribulations, but it sure would be nice that if somebody who had been there, somebody who had been through it, somebody who was willing to go through it, would just get up with me and go along the way, it would just be a lot nicer for that fight. That's where David's at in this last fight. Look at verse 17 again, if you didn't remember it the first time. David is weak. His enemy's trying to take him down because he's weak. And it says that Abishai came to rescue David. We need some friends that will come and rescue us. We need to realize that when we fight battles that might look the same, that might even smell the same, that we are not alone and we don't have to fight it the same way. We need to realize that, yo, we may be weary and we may be tired. It's time for us to rely on somebody else. I'm be honest with you. If David would have fought this fight his way, his old way, he would have died. He wouldn't have been able to win this one. It just wouldn't happen. Okay? But he doesn't. He wisens up. Christians, understand, you need to wisen up. Understand when you can't fight a battle or finish a fight that one way, rising up and get you some good friends, the right friends. Here's the kind of people you need. I told you we had one lesson. I lied. We got two lessons. All right? Kind of friends you need. People who will help you when you're weary. David's weary, man. He's wore out. He, he can't go on. But yet Abishai comes from. So, so we need that. Not some friends are going to say, oh, suck it up, you little wimp. You know, we, we need some friends that are going to actually suck it up for us. The second thing, we need people who will protect you when you're vulnerable. Look at what, look at what his people told him after they realized how old he had finally gotten. David, you, you're too important, man. You're not going out to the battle any longer. You know what they're really saying? Enough is enough. You got to stop. We need some friends, some good people that'll look at us and say enough is enough. It's time for you to stop. Right. And the third type of people we need, we need people who will love us when we're not around. Think about that one. Some people who will love you when you're not around. You know, the most heart wrenching thing is if somebody you thought liked you talk trash is because you're not around. Right. You, you hear you're like, what they say about me? Huh? I thought that was a friend. Yeah. Little punk. Right. Some people who will love you when you're not around. Look, look at what happens. And I think that's why there's that pause between the first giant and the last three. David's men, they go on to fight fights on David's behalf, even though David's not there. We need some people who will fight when you're not there for you. Right. Christian brothers and sisters right now, when, when you look around this room and you go down to that river and those people look back at you and you look at them, you need to know that these are members that are on your team that will fight for you or should be fighting for you. When you can't fight for yourself. And I love as we read this, this last little section, man, how it always gives a sentence or two for each of the giants. That one guy got 24 fingers. This other guy got a spear that's, you know, five or 300 shekels, whatever it was. Somebody, by the way, online, I don't know if you guys ever get to try any kind of weightlifting type stuff, but they wrote, I, I figured out that 300 shekels is only almost eight pounds. And they're like discrediting this giant. And I'm like, I don't know about you, but if you go to the weight room and you try to get an eight pound dumbbell, and like throw it like a spear at somebody, that, that's pretty legit, like hardcore. Joe might be able to do it, but I don't know if anybody else up in here could throw an eight-pound spear and actually hit whatever they're aiming at across the field, right? So, so that, that's a pretty legit thing. But it lists all this stuff about each of these giants. And then when it gets to the men that killed the giants, 
All they get is their name mentioned. And it sounds like it's such a bad thing, right? You're like, God, why didn't you? You know, it's like one guy's in the corner and he's like coming in at six foot six, 300 pounds. He done defeated everybody. He's got a 300 pound, a 300 shekel spear in his hand. He can chunk it across and hit everybody. Da, da, da. And in the other corner, we got Paxton. <laughs> it just seems like a kind of an unfair announcement, right? But here's what I love, because here's what everything in Scripture is supposed to be pulling us back to a point, right? Here's what I love. It's that way because these are ordinary people taking on extraordinary beings and the ordinary people with God win. You don't have to be nothing fancy. You don't need nothing about your resume about you to get the job done. God loves to take ordinary people with faith who look past the problem, past the size of the problem and do great things. So, so that, that's why, that's why scripture does it that way. Some people see giants. Some people see opportunities. Some people see size. Some people see God's strength. Faith can look at God instead of the problem. Here's your closing questions. Think about for the lady, uh, Stacy comes up and sings again. I'm about to say the ladies, but I forgot you by yourself, Stacey. Here's your question, for real. Think, think on these, just, just five questions. Do you need to deal with a sin so that God can start answering your prayers again? Is that why you're miserable? Is that why there's issues in your life right now that aren't being addressed, that aren't being solved? Because God's highlighting this sin and you're not dealing with it? Do you need to correct some past issues that hadn't been addressed? Whether it's by you or somebody else? Past issues can hold you back. Do you need to finish off some more giants? That you let slide in the first battle? Do you need to find the right friends? Or maybe the last one, maybe you need to be the right friend. I think if we really open up this chapter and check things out, somewhere along the way, there's something for every single one of us in our walk. And I think God uses stories like this, like highlighted stories of events that take place, to make sure that it reaches every single one of us. And it'd be a crying shame if God wanted something in today's chapter to reach you and you were too stubborn to let it. Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much. God, we're so grateful for, for this chapter. We're so grateful for the victories that you've given us in life. God, I'm grateful for these 10 people, Lord God, this morning that are going to profess publicly their belief in you, Lord God. God, that are going to symbolically wash away their past, Lord God, and come out new beings ready to ready to take on giants, whether they be eight or 78, Lord God. God, I pray that you move in a special way right now through this last song. God, if there's something that needs to be addressed, Lord God, that hasn't been addressed, you deal with it on a spiritual level. And God, I just pray that your people, like these ordinary people listed at the end of this chapter, can become extraordinary because of a faith we have in you. Thank you for your protection that's always all around us. Open our eyes to see it when we don't. In your great name we pray. Amen.